Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Elections for the Knesset, Israel's parliament, were scheduled for November 2019, which would have marked the conclusion of a five-year term. But the powers that be had other ideas. Just when it seemed like the 20th Knesset would be one of the rare few to last the full five years, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that the governing coalition would be dissolving itself. The country will now hold elections seven months earlier on April 9th, 2019. Joining us this morning to discuss the ins and outs of this upcoming election and what the results will mean for the future of Israel is Lahav Harkov, senior contributing editor of the Jerusalem Post, whose reporting and insights into the Knesset are devoured and valued the world over. Lahav, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, the latest polling that I saw, there were 13 parties, and that was before we learned that Labor was kicking out Sipi Livni's party, Hatznua, and before Moshe Yaalon, the former defense minister, had formed his new party. A couple of developments that we'll get to later on in our conversation. Some of our listeners know the ins and outs of Israeli politics like the back of their hands, and others might be wondering how elections could possibly work with 15 or more parties. So let's do a little rapid-fire intro to Israeli politics. First, is this many parties normal for Israel? This is actually pretty normal for Israel. In the last election, we had over 30 parties running, and we ended up with 10 in Israel's parliament, the Knesset. Um, the way two-thirds of those parties got dropped out is that there's a threshold of 3.25%, and anybody who gets less than that threshold of votes doesn't get into the Knesset. Um, but it looks like we're going to have more parties this time than last time because there are new parties now and parties that were sort of running together as like a merged list. They separated. Um, so there's always a lot. And if you're wondering with so many parties, how does anyone govern? You have to form coalitions in order to have a majority. So whoever has a plurality of the vote or whoever has the, the most seats in the Knesset, um, the leader of that party is usually made prime minister. I say usually because there's no law that says so, but it's happened every single time except for in 2009 that the leader of the largest party formed the government. Um, and that person has to negotiate with a bunch of other parties to form a coalition that will make up a majority. And then this way they have a majority to vote on laws and policies and other things. Now, ostensibly, I think Israel is going to elections because of a draft bill for ultra-Orthodox Israelis to serve in the military that either wasn't going to pass or wasn't going to pass in the right way, which is actually kind of a, a recurring theme in going to elections. Is that all there is to the story, or is there another reason why Israel might be heading to elections right now? So I think that that bill sort of provided the excuse and the timing. The bill's interesting, so I'll just explain a little bit about it. Um, you know, it's been a political debate for many years in Israel now of, you know, should uh, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, have to enlist in the IDF like uh, most other Israelis, um, or should they be exempted? And um, this is, yeah, the government collapsed in 2012 also over a bill like this. But in this case, the Supreme Court gave the Knesset a deadline of January 15th, and that's after two extensions, um, to pass a law. And even though 
the law that they had come up with was was pretty lax, and you know probably the ultra-Orthodox parties would not have been able to get anything better than that, they still would not be able to vote for it. And um, that meant that the government, and that they were going to vote against the government and they were going to resign if it passed. Um, you know, and, and there's this order, this court order that they have to pass a law. So, you know, they went to an election because there was no way to keep the coalition together and there was no way to obey the court, in theory. Um the reality is that Netanyahu is under investigation um, for three different cases. The third one ended not so long ago, and the attorney general, uh, well, he didn't say anything himself about it, but there are all sorts of leaks that um, he was probably going to, he's leading towards indicting Netanyahu, and that that would probably happen before Passover. Uh, so the thinking is, apparently, so so uh, sources close to Netanyahu say, is that Netanyahu wants to be reelected before the chance of an indictment, because that will sort of give the attorney general pause. Like, can I take a step that may cause the prime minister to be deposed so soon after he was reelected? Now, the attorney general says that he doesn't care about the election and he will make his decision. He's not that he doesn't care, you know, he obviously believes in democracy, et cetera, but like his decision does not depend on the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there is no law that says a prime minister has to resign if he's indicted. It's only if he's convicted and has exhausted all avenues of appeal. But the question is whether Netanyahu's coalition partners would fit in a coalition with him if he's indicted. Um, and I think that he'll have difficulty keeping a coalition together in that case. How do elections practically work? What what do voters do on election day? So on election day, um, you show up to a school or a community center or whatever government uh, owns building, and you show ID. Voter ID is not controversial here because it is a law that everyone must carry a government ID from age 16. And you show your ID and you go behind a screen. You have a tray in front of you, and the tray has little piles of slips of paper. Um, Each slip of paper represents a different party. You choose party that you want to vote for. You put it in an envelope, and you put that envelope in a ballot box. And so you're voting for a party and not a person. Now, you know who's in that party because it's made public. Well, you should know who's in that party, right? Some people probably don't pay attention, but (laughs) it is made public. And, um, you know, people keep that in mind. It's not just the leader of the party, even though the leader of the party is usually the person who you want to be prime minister um, or some other senior ministerial role if you're voting for a party that you know is not going to get a ton of seats. And um, you know who the people are behind that person who will, you know, either be ministers or will be members of Knesset. There's another difference between Israel and the U.S., which is that um, there's not a full separation of powers. This is typical for a lot of parliamentary systems. Um, where the ministers are also members of parliament. They get to vote on bills and things um, while they also serve in the executive as ministers. You talked a little bit about the personalities that people might cast their vote for, the members of the party, but what are the main issues on which Israelis cast their votes? So the number one issue for Israelis for a long time, perhaps always, is security. And in more recent years, the economy, the cost of living has become sort of the second or third issue for Israelis, certainly in part because there were these huge protests in 2011 that turned the cost of living into 
a much bigger issue for Israelis, and there are parties now, more than one in this election, um, that are really dedicated to that issue more than any other. But number one is, is still security. I want to come to this specific election now. Hebrew is read from right to left, so let's go right to left through the political spectrum together. There was this really, you know, for me, it was it was baffling, this out-of-nowhere split on the right in which Education Minister Naftali Bennett, who's the leader of the Jewish Home Party, which is the national religious party, pro-settlement, pro-annexation of the West Bank, at least in part. So Naftali Bennett, along with his party's most popular member, Justice Minister Ayala Chaked, they left the Jewish Home to start a new party that they're calling the New Right. What's behind this political gamble, and do you think it's going to pay off? So I wrote an article about this, how on the one hand, it was a surprise, right? They, were, they didn't give any advance warning that this was going to happen. But on the other hand, it was a long time coming. Um, Bennett and Shaked are, you know, solidly right-wing. They're what the Likud was until, you know, not that long ago. And they worked for Netanyahu when he was leader of the opposition. It was, I believe, 2007 and 2008 when they worked for him. Um, and, uh, Bennett was his chief of staff, and Shaked was also a senior staffer for him. Um, and they stopped working for him under circumstances that aren't completely known, but they weren't good. So let's put it that way. They they weren't getting along anymore. Um, Some blame Netanyahu's wife. Bennett and Shaked, for the most part, are, if that's true, they're classy enough not to say it. Um, And their views are, you know, they're against the Palestinian state. Bennett has a a plan that that involves annexing Area C, which is the area under sort of full Israeli control in the West Bank. And then the Palestinians would have autonomy in areas A and B, which are the areas that the Palestinian Authority administrates. But they wanted to enter politics before the 2013 election. Um, now, Now, Bennett is religious, but married to a secular woman, and he's not like religious in an extreme way. Um, he's Orthodox, but he's very modern. And Shaked is what Israelis call secular, but she's, you know, a traditional person. You know, she has a Seder. She she might even light candles on Shabbat. I don't know. These are things that a lot of Israelis do and then they still call themselves secular. So mm-hmm. it's a little it's a little different from how Jews sort of label themselves as the US because yeah. conservative and reform movements are tiny here. Um in any case, they present themselves as a duo, one religious guy, one secular woman. Um, and they they were looking to join politics. They were convinced to enter the UD, which was sort of the most right-wing party at the time in, in the Knesset. And they joined and they actually really revolutionized the party because they went from a party that was dying to a party that had a more significant force in the Knesset. Um, but part of this revolution was that the party was opened up to have internal primaries and um, instead of, you know, a committee that was picking people. But in those primaries, other than Bennett and Chaked, the people who were elected were sort of like the old timers of the party who were older, um, very religious, much more religious than Bennett and not wanting to make 
uh, reforms and compromise on religion and state, which is something that Bennett wanted. Um, and on other issues, they were extremely conservative. And it just wasn't working. There were a lot of issues. You know, when it came to the Palestinians, there were security issues, diplomatic issues. Bennett and Chaket agreed with their party. When it came to more social issues, uh, Bennett and Chaket were a bit more liberal and modern. And also on economic issues, they're um, very much like free market right. It's not like their big issue that they talk about all the time, but they're they're very free market and, and by you deal a little bit less so, a little bit looking to get more money for their constituents, for their schools and things like that. Um, and so there were clashes over the, a lot of the day-to-day issues, right? Like it's not like every day in the cafe you're talking about the Palestinians. So, so in a sense, this was a long time coming. Um, in a sense, they, they were sort of strangers in their own party, even though they were the leaders of the party. Um, so now they decided, they they say that they have polls or that show that they'll get more votes separately than together. Um, and the polls that the media has taken out, as some have shown that some haven't, but they, I think that they do sort of have a slightly different electorate. I think that there are non-religious people who would consider voting for Shaken and Bennett's party, who would never vote for the Jewish Home by UD party because they were so uncompromising on religion and state issues. So sticking with the right wing, but moving a bit more to the center, we come to the Likud party, the main kind of center right or right wing party, the party of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Earlier, you spoke about these corruption investigations swirling around the prime minister and why they might move him to call early elections. There are two different kind of questions here, right? There's the legal question of what those mean for the prime minister, but there's also the electoral, the political question. To what extent will voters have these investigations on their mind when they go to the ballot box on April 9th? And will they be viewing them as a a reason not to vote for the prime minister or a reason to vote for the prime minister? Well, if polls are any indication, the voters either have sort of like fatigue, they've heard too much, or they just don't care because the Zinniel's polling numbers really are not affected by news about the investigation so much. Now, there's a difference between news about the investigation and then actually being indicted, right? We don't know what people will do if he's actually indicted. But thus far, Netanyahu has a solid base of around 30 seats in the cafe, which is what he has now. He's been polling around that number for a while. Uh, And, you know, it it doesn't matter that the police have recommended he be indicted on three different cases, uh, including one count of bribery. Now, Lahav, as we move to the center, there are a whole bunch of parties kind of jostling for that title of the centrist party, the party that is concerned about you, about the the finances of the Israeli everyman. Um, but wouldn't it make more sense, at the very least, for Yeshatid, Kulanu, and Gesher, three of those centrist parties, um, or maybe even more, to unify into, into one centrist voice and run as a bloc? Well, I would... I would sort of should describe the block differently. I would like modulate it differently. Um, Kaplan is, is center right. 
and he calls himself a right-wing party, um, but they're a right-wing party that's focused on socioeconomic issues. Now, the talk with Cochlon has been that maybe he'll merge with the Likud. He himself was a minister in the Likud, um, and he was a member of the Likud for many years, and then he broke off to form his own party because he felt that he had sort of have more leverage to get things done that way. Um, and he's not wrong about that. Um, was definitely not not afraid of the ministers in his own party. Um, I mean, I don't know that he's afraid of Kachlan, but Kachlan definitely has more more negotiating power this way. Uh, in any case, uh, Kulana was polling dangerously low, along with others in the right wing bloc. Um, the Lieberman's yes, uh, Yisrael Beitenu party. Uh, Lieberman was defense minister until a couple months ago. Um, they're also polling very close to the threshold, um, and so Netanyahu was thinking. Uh, about sort of inviting these parties to come and merge with the Likud. Now, so far, they've denied that they're going to run with anyone else. They say we have a clear party identity and we have our own things that we stand for. But you never know. There's still, like, I believe, 99 days to the election, as we're speaking right now. Hmm. And then the centrist block, you have a bunch of parties. You have Yeshatid led by Yair Lapid. Um, they've been around for two Knesset now, so since 2013. Um, and Yair Lapid um, has made a point about being the centrist party. This was important to him. They're also more focused on sort of domestic, economic, social issues. Um, and then there's another party called Gesher, which was founded by Orly Levy, who used to be a Catholic member in Israel Beitenu, uh, that's Lieberman's party that I mentioned before. Uh, but she was the one person in his party who was focused on social issues and especially advocating for the poor. Public housing was one of her very big issues that she focused on. And now she's going to have a party that's focused on she's closing social gaps is the expression people like to use in Hebrew. So that's, that's what she's focused on. Um, and interestingly, she promises that half of her list will be female. These are parties like it's usually see working together, Yesha Pita and Gesher. And then there's also a new party that's coming up that's going to, that is led by former IDF chief of staff, Benny Gantz. He calls the party Chosen. Um, <laughs> in English, it's spelled like Hosen, which people are like, why did he name his party Pants in Yiddish? <laughs> but he did not. <laughs> um, he named his party Chosen, which is resilience in Hebrew. Um, in any case, we don't really know what his views are because he has not said his word. And bizarrely, he has been polling in second place, and his party's been polling at second place behind the Likud, despite us not knowing who's going to be in the party other than Gantz, besides us knowing, not knowing what his views are. In fact, in a recent poll, there, when they asked who was fit to be prime minister, Netanyahu got 36% and Gantz got 29%. So, you know, I don't know how long he'll be able to keep quiet, but it seems <laughs> like it's working for him. But in any case, the assumption is that he's also a centrist. Um, so all this, oh, and then there's one more party. There's the Tippy Lidney party, which um, the the Tippy Lidney party ran together with Labor as one block in the last class, and then they were called Zionist Union. They just broke up yesterday, which is a whole drama in of itself. Um, and she is also she's fairly to the left these days on uh, security and on the Palestinian issue. But I would say that she's more centrist on economic issues than the Labour Party, which is, you know, has sort of socialist roots, is now maybe somewhat... It, some of their members are, are really socialist, but some of their members are 
more just a very strong welfare state. And we'll come to Benny Gantz and then to Tsipi Livni in, in a moment. But just to follow up, when you listed the parties, you also went through and mentioned each of their leaders, which is a normal thing to do when you're talking about a party like that, but also perhaps indicates that part of the reason why they're not going to put minor differences aside or in some instances, you know, wrestle with some major differences and find a way to come together is because they are really kind of personality driven. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the fact that you've got a party like Gantz's party where the man has not opened his mouth to say a word about his politics, and yet people have decided that they really want to support him. It just shows how much his personality politics. And it's funny because, like, you know, I guess people like him as chief of staff, but chiefs of staff and the IDF also, they they don't give that many speeches to the nation. You know, you don't even speak that much. You don't, you don't get to know them that well, you know? And so it, it's just this strange phenomenon. But also, you know, Gesher is led by Orly Levy, and she... You know, she has a, she's had a serious Knesset career, um, I believe, since 2009, but don't hold me to that. Um, and but but, you know, she's it's her picture. It's her face um, on all the ads so far. And it's about her. And she says she's going to run by herself. And, you know, there, it's just a lot of ego. And Livni actually has been calling for a long time for people to put their egos aside and try to work together to you know, form a larger block. Um, and that's part of what got her in trouble with Abi Gabay, the head of the Labor Party, because he felt like she was undermining him. Uh, but strategically, Livni's probably right, because there's nobody in the party that, that's polling at even half the seats that Likud is polling at. So, you know, they might want to pool their resources if they want to try to win. Now, the conventional wisdom is that there is only one person who poses a threat to Prime Minister Netanyahu's continued uh, reign as prime minister, and that's Benny Gantz, who you mentioned before, who founded this uh, Hosen party, the resilience party. Well, the party. conventional wisdom really... <laughs> Go ahead, the please. The conventional wisdom really is that the person who the threat to Netanyahu's continued reign as prime minister is, is the attorney, attorney general, general Abhi <laughs> Fair enough. But from from an electoral standpoint, there's kind of long been this sense on the left. I sometimes think of it as Mashiach Yavo, a Messiah will come, which I intentionally choose a a religious phrase because the left is kind of known for its secularism. And the Mashiach who they envision is always some kind of, you know, white knight general riding in. And right now that figure is Benny Gantz. So you mentioned that he's hardly opened his mouth. Do we have any sense of what he believes, what he would work for? Yeah, so as I was saying, like, we, you know, the sense is that he's sort of to the left, like center left. The only thing that he has said was about two days ago, someone from I-24 News, which is this cable channel that they broadcast in French, English, and Arabic, um, news from Israel, and um, someone caught him on camera and asked him, like, I don't even remember what they asked him, but his answer was, it's not left, it's not right, it's about all of Israel, (laughs) which is like a total platitude and doesn't tell you anything either. Now, Netanyahu has already decided to paint God's as left. In a press conference this week, he said, you know, when people say they're not right or they're not left, they're usually left. Look at Yair Lapid. <laughs> Yair Lapid does not want to be called a leftist either. So. <laughs> but it's hard for me to even see him as a real threat to Netanyahu because, again, he said nothing. And while he's bizarrely popular for someone who has said nothing, he's still only polling at 
you know, about half of the seats that Netanyahu was polling at. However, there have been polls that have shown, like, you know, if he works with labor, how many seats do we get? If he works with uh, Yeshatide or Lapid's party, how many seats do we get? And those bring them much closer to the Likud. Now, on Twitter, you liken the recent moves in the center-left Zionist union to the hit TV show Game of Thrones. That's intriguing. Um, what exactly happened between Avi Gabay and Sipi Livni? Well, it was just the most ruthless thing I have ever seen in politics. And I've been covering politics for eight years now. This is my third election. And I, I've just never seen anything like it. Um, it labor leader Avi Gabay called a press conference. Um, and it's sort of a normal thing. There's like a weekly kind of routine where the reporters go from room to room to the different parties. Um, and instead of making his regular statement, he right there live on the air said that his partnership with Sippy Livni and her party is over. And she didn't know about it. And she's sitting right she was next just, to him. I mean, you could see on her face. like She's sitting right next to him. She's completely dumbfounded. It looked like nobody knew about it. Later found out one person knew about it, which was Kassar Bershel Yachimovich. And he did so many sneaky things so that she, she wouldn't find out. Like, for example, another party was holding a press conference at the same time, and instead of telling a journalist, listen, this is really important, you want to be here, he didn't say anything. So only three journalists showed up. Huh. Um, they were the lucky ones who got the news first because it was just crazy. Um, and then he didn't use a teleprompter. He usually uses a teleprompter. But, you know, then he might have seen what he was going to say about two seconds before he huh. said it, and then that would lose the shock value. So he wrote it all down, <laughs> like, by hand. It, it was just like a, a whole other level of, of political ruthlessness. Um, now, Whitney is not a stranger to embarrassing people live on TV either, <laughs> but uh, this this was something else. <laughs> I compared it to Game of Thrones because, you know, they are known for, <laughs> for you know, off of people's heads left and right. <laughs> There's also no guarantee that this is going to improve the Labor Party's chances in the upcoming elections. You know, it's had a few different names over the years, but Labor is the party of Israel's founders, and it had complete political dominance from 48 until the 1977 elections, but has hardly ruled since. Is Labor going to survive this political moment? So I think that Gabbai felt like he had nothing left to lose. He needed to try something else, and he had nothing left to lose. And Looney had been getting on his nerves with all this talking about working with other parties because, you know, he's the leader and he doesn't want to be undermined like that. Um, and the party has dropped in the polls to under 10 seats. And that's already a really bad situation for, you know, what used to be the leader of the left wing block. Um, and so, you know, he was like, well, if we're going to, if we're going to lose, we may as well see if this could work for us. Um, and honestly, no polls have come out since yesterday. I don't know, maybe they'll be on tonight. But so we don't know if it's going to work for him or not. Uh, but at least people within the Labor Party say that he checked it out with the polls and that his party would have done better without Livni. Now, Livni also has a problem because her party probably can't survive on its own. Um, she was polling, like not passing the electoral threshold back in the 2015 election. And then she combined with labor, they merged to form the Zionist Union, and that sort of kept her afloat. So she's probably going to be looking for a different merger. 
Now, there are so many other parties that we could touch upon. We haven't talked about any of the ultra-Orthodox parties. We haven't talked about Meretz, the left-wing party, or, or about the joint Arab list, which includes the Israeli Communist Party and also an Islamist party and some other fun kind of odd bedfellows. Um, but our time is short. So, so Lahava, I want to close just by asking you no kind of concrete predictions, although you're welcome to make one if you want. But can you tell us um, a few ways in which you think the 21st Knesset will be different from the 20th? There's a few things we know already. First of all, we know that the most extremist Arab Knesset members are not going to be back. Um, one is in prison because he smuggled documents to Palestinian um, terrorists who are in prison, and so he had to go to prison himself for that. But uh, another one, uh, her name is Khanim Dabi. People might have heard of her. I know when I do speaking towards the U.S., people ask me about her, so I think people have heard of her. She uh, was perhaps most famous or infamous for joining the Gaza Flotilla uh, back in 2010, where there were clashes between IDF commandos and uh, violent activists on the boat, um, and she was there. Um, and she's also uh, defended Hamas shooting missiles at civilian populations, things like that. Um, her party, actually, even though they are fairly extreme as a party, they decided they were sick of her shenanigans, and so she's not going to be back either. Um, so that's interesting. That'll be different. Um, I think that it'll be different because I think that there'll be several more parties and that that will make everything less stable. Um, you know, this past government lasted almost four years, which is a lot for Israel. And I think that when you have more tiny parties, it'll be harder to keep things together. Do you think we'll see, for example, a new high of, uh, of women in the Knesset? Do you think that we'll see the joint Arab list be the largest party in the Knesset? I mean, I, I've seen all of these as kind of possibilities. Sorry, the second largest party in the Knesset? I don't think. Oh, the joint list could very well be the second largest party in the Knesset. It, it was the third largest in the last Knesset. And so many divisions happening and so many parties are splintering that who knows, they might be the second largest, which would make Ayman Oda, if he remains the head of the joint list, it's not actually have their primaries or anything yet. Um, but in theory, if it's Ayman Oda, then he would be the opposition leader. Uh, and the opposition leader gets monthly uh, briefings on security issues. So that would be interesting uh, because he is Israeli Arab. Um That'll be something new for Israel to have an opposition leader who's an Israeli Arab and uh, quite revolutionary. Um, also, we did reach a record number of women in the last Knesset and then kept breaking the record as more and more women enter when people resigned or unfortunately people passed away. Um, and I think it's 35 um, out of 120. So there's room for improvement. I think there is a possibility for improvement in this upcoming Knesset. Um, we are seeing a lot of women coming in. First of all, the Geshar party is going to be 50% women. Um, this new party formed by Natalie Bennett and Ayala Chaked, we know four people who are going to be on their list, and three out of four are women. Um, Yeshati brought in another woman. They're, they're going to have Orna Barbizai, who's the first female general in the IDF, be on their list. Um, so it's a possibility that we'll get closer to even numbers. Unfortunately, the ultra-Orthodox parties and also the Islamic party within the joint list, um, they don't have women on their list as a rule. 
All right. Well, Lahav, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of these insights into what we should expect over the next 99 days. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you on again um, sometime in the coming months to, uh, to help us make sense of all of the new developments that will doubtless ensue. Sure. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Amos Oz. Good for the Jews? There aren't too many people whose death Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas would both mourn. Amos Oz was one such person. Born Amos Klausner in Jerusalem in 1939, he would witness the founding of the State of Israel, change his last name to the Hebrew Oz, meaning strength, and move to a kibbutz. He defended the young state in two wars and later fought for peace, even when that made him wildly unpopular. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, Oz said, the title traitor can be worn as a badge of honor. Oz spoke often of the two pens he kept on his desk. I never mix them up, Oz would say. One is to tell the government to go to hell. The other is to tell stories. He could be fiercely critical of Israel, but he supported his country in its battles against what he called the dark shadows of Iran, Syria, and fanatic Islam. He loved his country and he never lost his historical perspective. Out there in the world, he would say, all the walls were covered with graffiti. Yids, go back to Palestine. So we came back to Palestine. And now the world at large shouts at us, Yids, get out of Palestine. Amos Oz was mourned by world leaders, by Israel's entire political spectrum, by artists across the globe, including his compatriots, Israel's two other greatest writers, Aleph Bet Yehoshua and David Grossman, and by his loving family. His writings, his activism, his elevation of the Hebrew language, all of that will forever be good for the Jews. And may his memory be a blessing. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.